Welcome to episode two of Podcast in the Park. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Larry Rice, who has joined us today to discuss the valuable history of Mid-American Industrial Park. We are fortunate to have Dr. Rice share his perspective and rich knowledge of how Mays County became home to the park. Because of the vast importance of the history, it will be featured for both episode two and episode three. Sit back, relax, and let's dive into learning about the third largest industrial park in the nation. Dr. Rice, Mid-America Industrial Park has not always been an industrial park. Can you walk us through the footprint and how it began in Mays County? Yes, I can. Uh, I can assist in that. Uh, there may be others that can can, do, can even add to that. But, but I have some oral history as well as some uh, history that I've read about the park. And it's always been of interest to me. Uh, my father worked there during the, the days that it was a, a munitions plant which would have been, I believe, 1941 to 45. Not sure how long he worked there or what he actually did on the assembly line. And then my mother's brother was a guard in one of the towers, the old wooden towers. And so that was my first uh, recollection of uh, the uh, powder plant, as it was commonly called, is the powder plant. But, but it's got a rich heritage, and it certainly set the stage through one man's vision. That man would be Gene Redden. But, but uh, it played a, a very important role, though. The powder plant played a very important role in, in supplying ammunition, and and if you, if you read about it, it's called smokeless powder. I guess that was probably a, a good thing, uh, maybe even an improvement of what, what had purposely been used. But it was quite a, a public-private partnership between DuPont and the U.S. government. They acquired 15,000 acres, and, of course, uh, they needed water and they needed electricity, and so they so the infrastructure was put in. And the park itself, uh, my guess is, is that some of the existing fence is still there, but about a thousand acres was under a very uh, tight security where the actual production w- occurred, and it was it was quite a place, twenty four seven. I've had individuals tell me that, of course, there was not a significant uh, workforce, and so individuals were bussed in uh, through buses that ran. Uh, around the clock, there also was passenger trains that delivered a workforce. So we think about the workforce problems of today, and there's really nothing new, but they created a, an atmosphere and a way to figure it out. They did build some houses, uh, both uh, inside the park and, and outside what we call the park. But uh, the area we know as Cherokee Heights today uh, was a part of that. There were some, uh, some of the leadership housing was on, along the bluff uh, at Cherokee Heights, and then there was some uh, housing inside. And the city of Pryor uh, hurriedly built some houses, but, but it wasn't quite enough to, I'm sure, to meet the demand. So they, they just simply had not, not everyone had reliable transportation. So public transportation was very important. So that's where the buses and the trains came in. But uh, interesting enough, uh, there was a prisoner of war camp built outside the main fence and so it was uh it was just outside the park and it, probably the easiest way if if you entered sportsman acres today the some of the old foundation might still be there and and i have read and i was told in addition but i've read that once the public found out that there was a german prisoner of war camp right outside this munitions plant then there was quite a local fervor and the, the prisoners were moved to El Reno. So the question is, how did they find out? The main form of uh, communication was radio, and there was a broadcaster named Edward Murrow, and who's there's quite a famous uh, broadcaster, but there's evidence that, that he picked that tidbit up and started broadcasting it and caused uh, quite an uproar that, that the government would put a... Uh, 
a prisoner of war camp right outside because obviously if there, anyone ever escaped, they would want to, to do something to that plant. So, so it was interesting, and so they quickly moved. Uh, once it become public, I think they moved the, the prisoners uh, to El Reno to another federal facility. But uh, my, my good friend Bill Moon, who was assistant chief at Pryor, would tell me occasionally when German visitors would come by long after the war, they'd come to Pryor to, to see the prison camp where some of them were held. And so it was, it was quite a little sideshow from the whole powder plant era and, and so forth. But once the war was over, then, of course, the, the uh, powder plant had to close. There was, there was a little bit of effort to keep it going for a while to produce certain certain things, but the, the demand just was not there once World War II ended. And so there was a man named Gene Redknapp I mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, and I don't remember if Gene told me this or one of his sons or, or if I read it, but, but he was sent here primarily to dispose of the assets uh, of uh, the powder plant and there's some evidence that he was also uh, working with uh, uh, National Gypsum, who had been entrusted to do the maintenance on the park until some. So, so it, and, and whatever reason, Gene Redden was the uh, uh, was sent here to help sell off the assets and and so forth, and and to start disposing of this monstrous powder plant and all the land. The powder plant probably wasn't as large as all the surrounding land, and so as he was doing this, Gene had a dream or had a vision that this could be. Uh, quite an industrial park because it had it had roads it had water it had sewer it had it had everything that a that industrial park needed and and so he we really owe gene redden a great deal of of debt and if he's not in in the oklahoma historical hall of fame he should be because his vision really transformed an area we know today as mid-america industrial park but but he was successful in and getting the prior chamber of commerce uh as well as some help from tulsa to create a trust, and you know, there's a name called uh, Tony Jack Lines that was a, a very uh, great attorney, he's now deceased, but I believe Tony gets the credit for drafting the, the original trust document. And it's unusual, unusual in the fact that this industrial park and this document was created making the state of Oklahoma the beneficiary of that trust. So if you're an industrial park with the state of Oklahoma as a beneficiary, you have some extra powers and privileges that might not happen if you were privately owned. And so that in and of itself was uh, quite quite a, a bit of genius to create that trust uh, for the state of Oklahoma. And uh, and I would hasten to say that, that Gene Redden knew that it would take political power to, to do this. And throughout Oklahoma, we've had uh, both Republicans and Democrats that really uh, provided great leadership and at pivotal moments, uh, made very critical decisions and used their their seniority to help Oklahoma. And this particular era, it was uh, uh, Congressman uh, Ed Edmondson from Muskogee, Senator Maroney, and before that, uh, Senator Kerr was very powerful, but Senator Kerr had died in 1963. Now, you'll see the trust indenture was signed in 1960, but it wasn't totally dedicated and it, in my in my review of the, of the history, it wasn't totally dedicated and totally everything signed, sealed, and delivered until about 1966. But if you look at the original trust, uh, uh, it's, it's got Gene Redden's name, it's got a, a Mr. Burke's name, and it has a another Edmondson, which is interesting, was J. Howard Edmondson. So when the trust was signed, J. Howard Edmondson was governor of the state of Oklahoma, and his name's on the original trust, and his brother... 
uh, Ed Edmondson was our congressman. So the stars kind of aligned and people in the right places at the right time, including Gene Redden, that made this happen. Then there was an 11-year-old boy from Muskogee by the name of Jim Jones. And he had intertwined himself with the Edmondson family since he was 11. And then you fast forward to 1960, and he was in college at law in law school, and and he was interning and working with the Edmondson family. And and Ed told him he's going to to leave uh, Washington, that he needed to go to work somewhere else. And so he ended up going to work. Uh, we later called him Congressman Jones, but Jim Jones went to work as a result of Ed Edmondson deciding to leave Washington and so forth. He went to work for a vice president by the name of Lyndon Johnson. And so uh, then as history uh, rolls around, you've got a, a young man from Muskogee that's out of law school. He's working as uh, in Vice President Johnson's office, and then President Kennedy gets assassinated. And so that elevates Vice President Johnson to being president. And here's a young man from Muskogee that's a deputy chief of staff now for the president of the United States. And so I'll tell you that story because it's intertwined with this park. And so I mentioned the, the, the uh, trust authority was signed in 1960, but the final dedication and all the, everything was culminated in 1966 when, uh, Jim Jones, the intern, who later we call congressman, who later was an ambassador to Mexico, uh, he got a call from Senator Monroney's office and Congressman Ed Edmondson's office and said, you know, we're really having trouble getting the deed and the dedication and everything uh, out of the, the bureaucracy of the government. And uh, we think that you should you should schedule a dedication for the president of the United States to dedicate this park. And you, you'll be surprised how, happen, how quickly things happen. So uh, being the deputy chief of staff uh, from Oklahoma, he knew that the president would have to probably fly over Oklahoma going to his ranch in Texas. So he scheduled a stop. Now, that was the only, not the only stop they made that day. They started their day in, in uh, at a nuclear facility in Idaho. This is 1966. They came back to Denver for an event, and then they landed Air Force One in Tulsa motorcaded over to Pryor Creek, as they call it. And uh, I do remember this. I was 13. I remember that President Johnson, I did not see it, but I remember President Johnson's motorcade created quite a stir. It stopped at the Dairy Queen on South Mill en route to the uh, what we call now the Mid-American Industrial Park. But, but President Johnson stopped and had ice cream. He was a, a great politician. And so the Secret Service, of course, had been here days in advance, and they told the Mid-American Industrial Park exactly what they needed. And they used the area. I assume that there was a runway, but they used the area where the Mid-American Industrial Park Airport is. The Secret Service said, we need a trailer house for the Secret Service to be in and for the president to be in until it's time for him to speak. And of course, there had to be a podium and stage. And so the Mid-American Industrial Park, uh, Mr. Redden, made sure that there was a new trailer house there and, uh, and with certain kinds of distilled spirits that the, that the Secret Service ordered. We don't know if it's for themselves or, or, or for the president, but the Secret Service was very creative. So President Johnson come to Tulsa, come to Tulsa then to Pryor, dedicated the park without incident, went on to his ranch in Texas, and the next day, uh, Mr. Redden got a call from the same Secret Service agents and said, uh, the president, and the president may or may not know about this, but we want that trailer house delivered to the president's ranch in Texas. Uh, 
And so if you go there today, there's a couple 1966 model trailer houses that are painted green, or at least when I saw them a few years ago, they're painted, painted green, and there's strong evidence that one of those came from prior Oklahoma. But, uh, but I'm sure the president didn't, the Secret Service needed some improved quarters at the ranch, so they were just very creative. Now, they're long deceased. That's why I can tell that story. But they were creative in procurement of, of uh, a place for them to be able to protect the, the president at his Texas ranch. Very interesting and all intertwined with politics and people in the right places. And, of course, the uh, deputy, uh, the uh, Mr. Mr. Jones went on to become a, a congressman for about 15 years from the 2nd District of where we sat. And then years later, he was an ambassador to, to Mexico uh, with the presidential appointment. And today, he still resides in Washington. And we, he has an endowed scholarship at Rogers State University. And, and we still remain friends to this day. How cool. So, Dr. Rice, you had mentioned when it transitioned to OWA in 1960, what do you think that meant for Mace County? I don't know that they knew what it meant exactly, that they knew that it had great potential, but it it was a pivotal moment in the history of Mace County. It was a pivotal moment in the history of Oklahoma and, and, and Northeast Oklahoma because that industrial park set the stage for 5,000 jobs. It set the stage for large companies, small companies, startups, mom and pops. But more importantly, years later, when Google decided to locate, and you know, Google, I think Google would tell you that, that they need an abundance of water, they need an abundance of electricity, and they needed an abundance of, of land. And lo and behold, they found the perfect place in the, right in the, almost the center of the universe or the center of the United States in, in Mays County in Prior, Oklahoma. But in my mind, what, what it did for Mays County is it provided what we all need. And if, if a man or woman has a job, then there's hope, there's future, there's schools. A person who has a job pays taxes, they raise their family, and, and all the other things fall into place. And it set the stage for Google to come and in my mind, what Google did is it put the stamp of that Oklahoma can do this. Yes, we have Tinker and, and some government, other big government projects, but Google's private. And Google set the stage to invest $3 billion, not promised, but they've invested over $3 billion in this little county. And so that tells the rest of the world, you know, that Oklahoma can do this, that we can attract, we can sustain, and we can help uh, provide jobs with, with the billion-dollar company, not to take anything away from the wonderful uh, plants that are already located, because there's some global 500 and some in, uh, uh, 500 companies already in the park, but, but it just shows the world. Google really put Mays County, Mid-American Industrial Park, on the world map that we can do this. That's actually a really good segue to my next question. So um, as a former legislator and a college president, what do you think the impact does that, or what impact do you think the industrial park has on the state of Oklahoma? I think it's almost immeasurable. Uh, I think that the rest of Oklahoma would love to have an industrial park just like this. Uh, and again, I go back, If as a legislator, economic development was important because if you have men and women working then they pay taxes, and they in turn can support your schools, your police, your fire. They build homes, you know. They build businesses, and so that's that's what every region wants as 
is good paying jobs. And, and that's what the Mid-American Industrial Park has to very skilled leadership. And I've had the privilege of knowing all three directors. Mr. Redden was the first one, and then uh, Mr. Mitchell was the second one, and Mr. Stewart's the third one. But each one brought their own strengths and their own creativity. But it all goes back to one man's vision, and that's Gene Redden. But as a legislator, it made my job a lot easier because we had jobs that people wanted in Northeast Oklahoma. And and the impact of that park is still being measured because sooner or later we will we will no doubt land one of these secret battery companies that the Wall Street Journal writes about. But because we can, because we have the space, we have the facilities, we have we 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 have shown even in World War II that we can deliver the workforce. It may not be, it may be totally different today how it's delivered because there's so many people have their own vehicles, but mass transportation is a, is a, is a part of it. Uh, we're regionally located. We're doing some joint ventures with Arkansas. But it, it the to me as a legislator, it it was a game changer. Uh, when I told people about the Mid-American Dust Park, a lot of them had never heard of it. But once Google arrived, then it put us on the world stage, and it was a pleasure to represent uh, the Mid-American Industrial Park. I'm excited because of my kids, my grandkids. I'm excited about the Pryor and Shoto School District, of which Google's invested property taxes. And they, they are already making a mark on being the two of the finest and best funded. If you're the best funded school district, you can have the best facilities. You can hire the best and brightest teachers. And you, not to say that the other schools in Mays County are not quality, but it's, uh, it just gives Pryor and Shoto a little bit different advantage when, when you don't have to rely on state aid. Uh, Dr. Rice, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and the role you now play as university president? Yes, thank you. Uh, I had the privilege of being a lifelong member of Mays County. I grew up, uh, I was born in Pryor at the old Moots Hospital, which is now the, the, the City Hall. I just throw that in for good measure. Uh, I grew up and uh, my, my folks had a farm east of Macy. So I graduated from Macy and I was in the top four in my class. And my wife would say, you have to tell the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is there was only four in my class. So uh, then I went to, then you could go to Shoto or Wagner for high school. So I was right on the dividing line of these school districts. And so uh, most of my relatives were going to pro, going to Shoto at the time. So I, I ended up going to the Shoto High School and graduated from there. Thought I was going to get drafted. I didn't. And so I didn't start to college until January. But, but uh, once I was, Realized I was not going to get drafted. Then, then I went started my education at NEO, uh, then NSU, then University of Tulsa, then then OSU, and so uh, uh, I really believe in uh, that set the path for me to be a college president. It also helped that I was the youngest of five children, because my mother and dad did not have uh, a high school education, but my brothers and sisters, everyone, the entire family helped me uh, get that first college degree. And then uh, I signed on to the police department to get my master's degree because there was some federal money for uh, law enforcement in the 70s to go to school and back get, get degrees. And so I signed on to the prior police department and was able to finish my master's. And then, then I parlayed that into a teaching job at Claremore uh, Junior College because I was probably one of the few that applied that had a master's degree with a criminal justice background. And so in 1979, I went to uh, work at Claremore Junior College as a faculty member in the criminal justice program. And then along the way, finished a doctorate, and uh, along the way, uh, was elected to 
the Oklahoma House of Representatives, and that in turn required me to leave Claremore Junior College because it was a state-supported school and seek employment in a private school. So I was fortunate enough to be employed by the University of Tulsa for 17 years. Uh, after leaving the legislature, I worked full-time at the University of Tulsa, and by by the year 2000, uh, Claremore Junior College had transitioned to Rogers State College and then finally Rogers State University. And in 2008, there was an opening for the presidency, and I applied, and lo and behold, I was lucky enough to, to be hired as president. So I've only worked at two schools uh, in my career, and that's Claremore Junior College and uh, also known as Rogers State University and University of Tulsa. But along the way, during my, my previous years at at Claremore Junior College, I was able to establish uh, the prior campus in 1985, what today is the Thunderbird Youth Academy. It's located, the original school was located there in the Thunderbird Youth Academy. But but several years ago, six, seven years or so ago, uh, I had the opportunity to have conversations with uh, the second director of the Mid-American Industrial Park, uh, Sanders Mitchell, and always wanted to uh, Rogers State to be a part of the park, and, and he, he would always remind me I'm saving some space there in that valley uh, for Rogers State. Uh, uh, he was successful in recruiting uh, OSU IT to be in the park. Also, uh, Northeast uh, Career Tech was in the park, and he said, we just need, to, we need all of you there. And I kept telling him we didn't have the money, and that we couldn't afford to move from the uh, Thunderbird campus, that, which was in the prior city limits. And so finally one day uh, he called and he said, let's go have lunch. And we would have lunch occasionally. And uh, so we went to lunch uh, down at Mia's, uh, which is uh, adjacent to the Mid-American Industrial Park. And they always had uh, fried catfish on certain days, and we knew those days. And so we, we were there over lunch, and when Mr. Mitchell said, uh, if if we provided uh, the opportunity to build a building and some, some land you think you could move the campus? And I said, I think we can do that. I need to get permission from my board, the University of Oklahoma. And he said, well, I need to get permission from my board. So that started a discussion over some really good fried catfish at Mia's. And uh, so the rest is history. I, I appeared before his board and brought some of my folks uh, from my board members and uh, the Mid-America Industrial Park, or I should say appropriately, it's the Oklahoma Ordinance Works Authority trustees. They approved uh, the, the building of Rogers State University, as well as the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents. Both boards approved a construction of a new facility in the, in the Mid-American Industrial Park that would house Rogers State University. And so we've been there now about seven years, along with our partners at Career Tech. OSUIT uh, ended up pulling out and going back to, to Okmulgee, so that left uh, Northeast uh, Career Tech and Rogers State to try to try to be the, the provider of education. So we, we enjoy doing that. We've got a great partnership with Career Tech. We've got a great partnership with the industrial park, with, with some partnerships, teaching classes, uh, particularly with process uh, technology. We share a faculty member. And so uh, Dave Stewart and Scott Fry, they've been great leaders and, and great great providers in helping uh, Roger State get established. And, and then we have a, a very wonderful uh, innovation center that's a, a partnership through prior public schools. And... Uh, 
right today, Rogers State University has the largest number of concurrently enrolled students for the schools who offer baccalaureate or four-year degrees. So uh, that is uh, in large part because of our partnership with prior schools and, and the other schools in Mays County. Uh, we also have a campus in Bartlesville that's got a great partnership with the local schools as well as the main campus in Claremore. Dr. Rice, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming to talk to us about the history of the park and how, as a member of Mays County, that's impacted you throughout the years. Thank you, Brittany Greer, for this opportunity. We appreciate having this opportunity. I appreciate having this opportunity because the park has been intertwined with, with my life. Uh, some of my earliest jobs off, off the farm was in the, in the park, uh, Cherokee Mobile Homes, which manufactured mobile homes. I had some labor jobs uh, just out of college when I was trying to find a job uh, and during the construction of the row bale and, and also of, of the uh, Ralston Perina, what we call the, the soy protein plant now. So it's been an integral part of my life and, and I, I always want to say thank you to the Mid-America Industrial Park trustees and and to the leadership of Mid-America Industrial Park for, for constructing and giving Rogers State University the opportunity to have such a first-class facility inside the park, very prominently located right on 69A. And so I always want to make sure that, that I say thank you to the Mid-America Park trustees and the leadership.